So I'd like you to use your imagination. So picture with me. This morning, our church loads into two buses awaiting us in the parking lot right out here and heads to an early matinee at the movie theater. Now, since we are a smaller church, we are in a tight budget, and so many of you will have to sit three to a seat. All members, all attenders, and all who just happened to come out this morning out of curiosity, all of us this morning at 11.30 with box lunches from Maddie in hand aboard two buses to the movie theater. Now, the movie showing today, maybe you've heard about it, is both disturbing and delightful. The, the movie is called The World We All Want. And then there's a subtext, is not the world we all have. It's a utopia that starts in a paradisiacal world that narrates a fall downward from the bliss to catastrophe and then rises from bondage to happiness and to freedom. Now this story is set within a flourishing garden-like world created by its glorious creator manifesting his beauty throughout the entire universe. The happy creator just simply loves to display his beauty to his creation in order to dazzle them into a heartfelt submission to him. All is beautiful, lush paradise wrapped around his happy people. And then it happens. Tension builds. Soon after the movie starts, the attack occurs. Brutal, heartless, seductive treason slithers into the garden like a boa to its prey. The the nemesis launches his subversive plan to overthrow the sovereign, bringing disunion, disorder, and, and even death to the entire world. We, we inch forward in, in our seats. The munching popcorn slows to a halt. We watch paradise wilt. Tragedy of tragedies. The citizens of this world start thinking that they can take care of themselves better than the loving creator. That these citizens of this kingdom can create a flourishing life apart from the one who made him. The atmosphere of this world, now diabolically deceptive and destructive, begins the process of suffocating the life out of the living Yet, hope does not go out. The creator and ruler of the world loves his world and its inhabitants, people. He hardly is threatened or intimidated by the dark enemy. There's no chance that the enemy will ultimately win over the world. The dark night begins to give way by the dawning of hope. The Creator promises to send His Son, who will be the King into this broken world, to defeat the enemy and the wicked rebels and deliver His people out of destruction and death and lead them into this new, renewed world, perfect paradise in perfect peace, where there is no sickness, no sadness, no sorrow, 
No disease, no fighting, no depression, no being made fun of, no rape, no fires, no hurricanes, no widows and infants who are just walking about, where children are not gunned down and elderly forgotten, where poverty is nowhere and failing memories and bodies are a thing of the past, but rather there is much for all, laughter, singing, love, joy, clean water, rich food, healthy skin, pleasant smiles, a blazing glory in the sky with its multitude effects, people living together in perfect peace, everyone welcoming, full and forever beauty and enthrallment. This entire creation sings gladness in God, giving glory to God, finally finds peace with God, with one another, with each other, and with the entire created order. And then we sit and watch eight words come up on the screen. The beginning of the end that never ends. The lights come on and no phone comes out. The three-quarter full bag of popcorn just sits there as we, with almost imperceptible movement, begin to gather our breath and our belongings as we meditate, ponder, and think about what in the world did we just go through? Well, we're not getting on buses this morning. So, Maddie, we're not going to have lunch for all. But we are launching a seven-week series in the Psalms. I will say it probably over and over again the term salter. So please know that it's not just someone in the kitchen salting food or something. What this is referring to is the whole 150 psalms, songs, poems, if you will, that were written over 800 years and then another 200 years to collect all those and collate them and cinch them together into one solid epic book with a beginning, middle, and end with an introduction to characters and the beginning of a plot line. And so that's what we're going to do in seven weeks. Today, we're going to start it up. We're going to look at Psalms 1 and 2. And the Psalms, this message is titled, The Doorway into the Psalms. And so all we're going to do today, collectively, with our imagination, we're going to move through that doorway into the entryway and we're going to look around. And we're going to see two things. We're going to ask two questions that will be disclosed to us in answers. The first one is, who is in this world? Psalm 1 gives us the answer. There are four characters through the whole Psalter. And then we'll go, well, well, 
what's going on in this world? And that's the starting of the plot line, and it's given to us in Psalm 2. Together they form the introduction to the whole Psalter that's held together in five books. So next week you'll be going into book one, which starts in Psalm 3 and ends in 41. Pastor Brian's not going to preach all those. I think he's landed on Psalm 13. And then Psalm uh, book 2 comes into play, continuing to unfold and roll out the plot line of this massive epic story of the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic covenant, which we will talk about later. And that goes from 42 to 72, and then from 73 to 89 and 90 to 106 and 107 to 145. This whole epic book is put together in five little books to say one story. And it starts today in Psalms 1 and 2. If you've got your place in Psalms 1 and 2, please stand with me. As I read God's precious word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. For the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why, why do nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we are right on the eve of something spectacular, not certainly because of me, but fully and utterly because of you. You have written and 
transferred and superintended a massive book called the Psalter. And so we stand at the doorway, open the door for us, allow us to go into this world, cause us to enter this story. Don't let us stay out. Don't let us merely take notes. Don't let us be mere spectators, but white, hot worshipers of you participating in the story. And, and teach us, cause us to learn the doctrines of this story. And help us to understand the symbols that summarize this story. And shape us and mold us in our attitudes and activities and actions with the story. And oh God, please cause us to worship like the story promotes. And we will be blessed and you will be magnified. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, so here we are. We're right at the doorway of the Psalter, a massive book. The door is opening, and now we enter in and look around. Who is in this world called the Psalter? Uh, immediately, we bump into the first character. We have never seen anything of this nature. He is spectacular. He is vividly glorious. Blessed is the man. We bump into the blessed man. Who is he? Doesn't say right now. But one thing for sure, the writer who is King David, according to Acts 4.25, uses a word that is all throughout the Psalter and in some other places. It's one of my most favorite words in the Old Testament. It's a word that I tell my family sometimes, if I ever get a tattoo put on my body, I think it's going to be this Hebrew word. It's ashray. Isn't that a beautiful sound at least to it? Ashray. It's, it's trying to describe something indescribable. It's, it's a uh, 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 a lush, flourishing existence. It's filled to overflowing with exquisite delight and joy. No kind of circumstances can snuff out ashray. Ashray just keeps bubbling up and bubbling over. Happiness, contentment, joy, inexpressible and full of glory is found in this person, the blessed person. Blessed is the man, the ashray. Now the psalmist puts a little organization to his description of both the blessed man and the wicked, which we'll get to in a moment. He will say, here's the blessed man. He's not like this, but like this, and the results are like this. And then in 4 through 6, he says the same thing, except the opposite, to the wicked. They're not like this, but they're like this, and it results like this. So, the blessed man is not like what? Well, we read it. Who walks not, there's the negative, in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You see, there's a, 
a contrast going on, and here's the next character in the storyline, but we'll get to them in a, in a moment. Everything about the blessed man is 180 degrees away from and opposite to the next character that we're going to look at. They are called three names. All through the Psalter, you'll bump into them. Wicked, sinners, scoffers. And the wicked are severely judged, and the sinners are constantly mastered by sin. And the scoffers, well, they just laugh at righteousness. Kind of like that. The blessed man is not like this. And notice the preposition. I love prepositions. If it bores you, then we'll fast forward pretty soon here. But in, 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 in. And then the whole thing ends with an in in Psalm 2, verse 12. This, this means a realm, a, a sphere, an influence, a sway, a, a grip. The blessed man is not in the realm of or in the sway of or in the grip of the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. And notice what they're giving out. These wicked sinners and scoffers love to put people under their sway. They start with counsel. This is their teaching. This is their thinking. And then you keep moving, and now it's standing in the, the way. The way all through the Psalter means a path or a lifestyle. Now we see kind of the behavior or the lifestyle of this group. The blessed man is never brought in like a vortex into the center of wickedness and sinfulness and mockery of that sort. And last one, in the seat. This one is referring more towards belonging, a, a, an identity of some sort. The blessed man is not in that grip. Well, well, what is he like if he's not like that? Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. Recall his inner world. Recall his heart. He is filled to overflowing with joy. The only thing he likes to put his attention to is exquisite beauty. And that causes him to be dazzled and dance within his inner world. And so like every human being, attention always follows interest. His mama never had to say, sit up and pay attention. Because his attention is locked in on his interest, and his interest is pure, undefiled beauty. And so notice what he does. He delights. He doesn't have to do it. He wants to do it. He longs to do it. He loves to do it. He delights in the law of the Lord. Now, in, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, law could mean the, the, the ten, the ten uh, commandments, but it's written differently. It's called the Torah. Some of you might know that word. It refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's a book. And 
the ashray man, the blessed to overflowing with infinite happiness, delights in his book. He has a book, and he loves the author of the book, of the Lord. He loves the Lord, and he loves the book, and he reads and meditates and ponders and ruminates day and night. So this is like a, a constant friend to him. Each and every day, all through the day, he meditates day and night. And, and what does this result in? He, he's like a tree. So all through the Psalter, you're going to bump into symbols and imageries. These are called typologies, and they're pointing to a bigger, better reality. So you'll see a tree, you'll see rivers, and they signify and point to something infinitely bigger and better. He is like a tree, firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit and its season and its leaf, does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. You can almost see King David reflecting back to how the Torah starts. It starts in Genesis 1 and 2. It starts in a plush paradise, a garden. And you look at the garden, and it's filled to overflowing with life. And then right in the center of the garden is a tree of life. Could it be that we're looking at the blessed man? He's a tree firmly planted by streams of water. So now we see his surety, his, his, his fidelity, his permanence. Unlike the one in the garden in the first time, Adam got blown away by deception. Not this tree. This tree is planted. And the taproot and all the rootage goes into this water. This stimulating, satisfying sustenance that goes up into the tree and it's so good and it's so powerful that it pops excess life out for those around him. It's called fruit. And, and, and when the blessed man is out suffering and going into wilderness and whatnot, he doesn't wilt. He stays green. The blessed man, there is the first character in this world. So we keep moving. We have no idea really who he is. We're just enamored with, we're dazzled by this massive, glorious being. But now we start bumping into these trio, the, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. And it says in verses four through six, who are they? Now notice something here. The wicked don't get good press. Unlike sometimes in media where you know the name, you know their background, they are almost hailed as whatever. Here is, is not so. <laughs> That's how he describes them. The wicked are not so. Are not so of what? The contrast between the blessed man. So all of these characters that we will meet in this storyline are 180 degrees different from the blessed man. 
are not so, but they are, and now he describes them this way. It's like chaff. When the winnowing wind blows through the barn, the grain falls onto the floor, and then the chaff look like they just take wings and fly away. They're so light. They're so temporary. They have no roots. They are blown away into the last verse in Psalm 1. That is their destination. So now we see the blessed man and we see the wicked people. But notice another group in here in verses 5 and 6. Excuse me. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So you're going to see the righteous pop up in this world. Who are they? We'll get there. But for now, he seems to only give us like two characteristics of this character. We've seen two and here's the third one. And the first characteristic of the righteous is that they are in a congregation. They are social creatures who move into social interaction and develop a society or develop a new community. They're not flitting about as independent, autonomous, self-made, self-created Creatures. No, no, no. They're humble and they come in and they're glad to be in a congregation. They love one another. They give preference to one another. They support one another. They are a corporate solidarity. A whole bunch of people called congregation, singular. That's what the righteous look like. And then this whole congregation of the righteous, according to verse 6, are known by the Lord. Now, this known by the Lord, I'd hope that you wouldn't go to some kind of database that did research and now he knows them. Certainly the Lord knows this righteous through and through, but that's not what this is talking about at all. The first time that word is used is is in Genesis 4, verse 1. You can look it up, but here's how it sounds. Adam knew Eve. And she conceived. There is an intimacy kind of knowledge. There is a love-based movement in this knowledge. Being known by the Lord is of utmost security and great joy in being known by the Lord if you're in the congregation of the righteous. It is sheer joy for the righteous. It is sheer terror for the wicked. That's the third character in our Psalter, in this world that we've entered into called the Psalter. But, but we bump into the fourth and final one, and as we read the whole Psalter, we begin to understand that this is the protagonist. This is the main character of the whole Psalter. That's found in verse 2 and 6. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And then in verse 6 we read, For the Lord 
knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked perish. So now we have the fourth and final, and this character is called Lord. Now hold on for a second. Every good English translation will take this name and communicate it to English-speaking and English-reading congregations with all capitals. That's how it's spelled. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is the divine name of the one who is sovereign over the entire universe, who created the invisible and visible. Everything is under his care and jurisdiction. Well, who is he? Lord, all caps, pops up for the first time in Exodus chapter 3. And the setting is Moses. He was in Egypt. Life looked pretty good. And now he's in the wilderness. And there's some reasons why. And he is shepherding sheep. And he looks over and he sees this bush. And it's a burning bush, but the bush isn't consumed. And so he walks over and gets really close to it. And he hears, this is hallowed ground, take your sandals off. And and now there's an interaction with the Lord. And the Lord says, he gives him a commission and says, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to go to evil Pharaoh. And I want you to say to him, let my people go. Because Yahweh, the Lord, is calling them. And you're going to come out of bondage and out of slavery and into freedom and into the wilderness so that you can worship me. And and Moses said, well, what's your name? (laughs) And he said... I am who I am. Huh? All that I am, I am for you. It's translated into Yahweh. That's his name. So if you hear me say Yahweh, I'm saying Lord. The fourth and final character of this storyline in the Psalter. He is the one who is the sovereign governor of this entire universe. Who has both written the script. Look at verse 2. And he orchestrates everything. He knows everything. And he would never, ever let mutiny take over. But he allows it to progress a certain way in a certain time and a certain degree until he expunges all evil and brings in all good into this lush, paradisiacal place called new heavens and new earth. This is the fourth character in the Psalter. We might not know him well yet, but boy, will we get a chance to get to know him as we move through the storyline of the Psalter. So there are the four characters, but, but we still don't really know what's going on. So we're looking around and we say, well, what in the world is going on? And now the psalmist, who is King David, launches an investigation. Look what he says. Why do the nations rage, that is to say, noisily assemble together, and the people's plot, meaning they're meditating on this plan, in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. So now we know this beautiful world is filled with devils. It's, it's, it's infiltrated with evil. There's, there's a war-torn environment into which we're stepping. It's not safe. It's not safe. Who are these people? We saw them, the wicked. And they're many, the peoples and the nations. And they're mighty, they're kings and rulers. And they're, and they're everywhere. And they, they come together. There's a huge assembly. And it's a noisy assembly. It's not sounding like a celebration. And they are counseling one another and putting together, plotting this grand scheme to do what? To go against Yahweh and His anointed. And so they're thinking that this plan will be successful and they all come together into this perverted pep rally and the, the, the dark Lord of darkness arises and looks out over his pep rally and says, let us. And he says, break the bonds and the cords from us so that we can be free. This is our version of Ashray. We're going to be happy. We're going to have everything we want and need. And the cheers of this devilish group Ascend to the dark Lord, and a putrefying praise is vomited out of their mouths as he listens to the praises. That's the world in which we've just moved into? Mm -hmm. And that's the investigation that he pulls up, King David. But now we need the indignation piece to it. And the Lord's indignation found in verses 4 through 6. We read, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So these pint-sized, scrawny, ant-like insurrectionists think that they've got a plan going in this world to take it down. And the only way they're going to take it down is to go after the, the universal king and his anointed. He laughs. It's a puny, puny attempt. It's not going to happen the way they think it is. But they don't know that yet. And they come at him and around him. And then he speaks. And it's furious. And it's fiery. And it's wrath. And he sums it up in one promise. He says, I'll read it again. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, the holy hill. Now what is happening here is he's hearkening back to the first time he put out this promise in the whole Old Testament. And it's found in Genesis 3.15 
where the slithering snake comes in and hisses out deception and the fall of mankind occurs and the Lord shows up and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And the woman's seed will bruise your head. That becomes the promise that is traced throughout the entire Old Testament and finds its destination in Bethlehem in a manger. And they don't know who it's going to be. It's the son. It's, it's the seed of the woman. And so you start looking through all of this. And, and is, it, is it Seth? No. Is it Noah, Shem? No, no. Is it Terah? Is it Abraham? No, no. Isaac, Jacob, it's got to be Judah. No. Moses, Joshua, one of the judges? I know it's Saul. No. What about the successors to the Davidic throne out of David, his son, Solomon? <laughs> no. The people wait and wait and wait. This promise is to hold their hope filled with life and vigor, even though they live in unpromising circumstances. The wicked ones know that something's coming, someone's coming, and they're going to smash out the seed. They can't find him. They can't get to him. Herod even thought, I'll just kill all the boys two years and younger. They still couldn't get him. That's the promise that blows the wickedness off the face of the earth. They don't know how to deal with that. And so now we come to the centerpiece of the whole Psalter. The floodlight hits the psalmist's declaration, verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What is happening here is hearkening back to 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14. You can find it smattered all over the Old Testament, but this is the concentrated centerpiece of the Davidic covenant where the Davidic king is promised by Yahweh to reign and rule in the Davidic kingdom over the Davidic citizens in this glorious Davidic world. That's the promise that is traced out throughout the whole Psalter. We will see it in book one and book two that the king is like a fugitive running and, and, and they're trying to stomp him out. And then in book 3, we, we see in Psalm 88 that they're, they're crushed. And, and there's hope is dismantled. They think that Yahweh reneged on his promises. He's not going to renege on his promises. Ever, ever, ever. It's sure. It's stable. It's finished. It's complete. But the environment, the consequences, the situations, they start really moving on us. This is the declaration that we must hold on to. This is what Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, 
right before and during the exile in 586 over to Babylon, wrote lamentations and said, oh yes, is what I recall to mind. Therefore, I will have hope. And then he just oozes out because of the Lord's steadfast love. It will never cease. Mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Well, we must end our journey. We haven't even journeyed into this, we'll call it an edifice, or maybe, maybe a mansion with many rooms. But we've gotten at least into the entryway. And we bumped into four characters, and we saw a plot line starting to move. But now the tables turn, and he starts looking at us, and you and me. In verses 10 through 12, we see an invitation to come out of just sitting in a pew, to come out of just hearing and listening like a spectator and move right into the middle of the storyline like you would at a movie theater. And you get caught up and you live in this new world. But this world, remember, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We can become dismayed. If you've never been in those shoes, you will be. It's awful. And you start becoming disoriented and disjointed. Disunited from the one who loves you best. And it just doesn't seem like he's holding his promise ever. Throw up and out an SOS to him. This is the closing. This is the invitation. The first one is found in verses 10 and 11. And that is, surrender to him. Stop acting like a queen or a king over your puny kingdom. You're not the one in charge. You never have been. You never will be. Stop trying to control all the outcomes with your calendar and your money. It isn't working and it's not supposed to work. It's not designed that way. But rather, lift out your arms and like a bungee jump, just surrender to Him, the Blessed One, who is the Anointed One. Hebrew word, Messiah. Do you hear it? I'll tune it down. Messiah. Greek word, Christ. Think about the connection. Who happens to be the son of the great Yahweh. Surrender to him. And now it starts in verse 12. And so the SOS has to have an O in it. Obsess over him. Don't just study him like a biology study book. Look at him. Gaze at him. Move into him. Talk to him. Cry out to him. Confess your sins to him. Pour forth water on his feet like Luke 7, the prostitute who went to find him because she knew he was filled with love and she now has hope and she went down and incessantly started kissing his feet. Kiss the son. Obsess over him. Talk to him much. Talk about him much. Fixate and focus on the blessed one. There's to help with the 
acronym. Settle into Him. Look at how it ends. Blessed. There's our word. It's the same word. Ashray. When we are attached to, united by faith in, the blessed one. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. The swirling winds of deception and destruction are everywhere. And you will topple immediately. But we have a shelter. And it's not a man-made shelter through our professions and through our monies and through our personalities and through our giftedness and through our families and whatever we concoct thinking this is shelter. It's not shelter. It's fake. Rather, settle into Him as your refuge. Settle down. You are at home in Him. To try, it's crazy to try, but to try to take a message like this and to stretch my arms clear out over the Psalter, 150 poems, and bringing it together and seeing a whole big book and put it into one sentence that I would for you to remember. Here's my attempt. Surrender gladly to King Jesus, knowing that there is no refuge from Him, only refuge in Him. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You so very much for Your mercies that are new every morning. You have accomplished the victory by sending Your Son, Christ Jesus, into the world to live the, le the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died and was raised in triumphant vindication as the first fruits of this new creation. Cause our hearts to well up with incessant praise. Cause our hearts to be supple and tender and susceptible to splendor. Move us towards your Son, our Savior Jesus. Help us to acquiesce and help us to submit and help us to trust and just help us to get home and stay home. We want to say we love you, we bless you. Cause this story to restory our imagination and fill our hearts with reality and animate our limbs so that we walk and talk in this world in a manner that is honoring to you. And we pray this with full confidence that you do not break your promise. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.